Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. We're returning to the roots this week. You know, the roots of this podcast really started off with anonymous folks on Twitter coming on and hadn't done that in a while. Proud to say at this point, 10 anons have come on. No one's been doxxed be, uh, because of me. And so we're going to try it again. And today, the guest, none other than Trashy Mech Oil Trash. Welcome on, Trashy. Thank you. So, not trying to dox, but what can you tell people about who you are? Well, I guess uh, to kind of sum up my experience in oil and gas, when I was younger, I kind of started out uh, doing some kind of short-term gigs. You know, I moved rigs for a little bit. I worked oil field construction, that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, I got into... The oil and gas operations world um you know started as an operator kind of worked in conventional moved around there a little bit got up into the oil sands on some big kind of projects and uh eventually got moved into you know supervision management type role and you know worked some interesting i guess improvement projects that sort of thing uh for a fairly large size company Gotcha. So the, because uh, the whole genesis of this is I got a text one day from your DM on Twitter, and it basically said something to the effect of management is fucking up this company or fucking up companies. And you went on a pretty good rant. And uh, at some point, I, maybe during the podcast, I'll dig it up or I'm sure it'll it'll come out and you're saying you're like, let me on, let me uh, let me talk about it. So go ahead, let us have it. Let management have us. What's uh, what's going on out there that caused the DM? Well, I don't know. I think I've been pretty vocal on Twitter about uh, you know some of the things I've seen, and you know I've got a lot of friends, not just in the oil and gas industry, but uh, you know in some other industries, and it seems like you know in in large companies and you know i'm sure a lot of people are aware but the story always ends up being kind of the same and you know i i have friends that you know actually a friend just told me the other day and you know it's similar to my experience and you know many of my other friends he's oh yeah they just did a survey at our our company and uh you know they found that uh the frontline workforce and you know the one and two level up managers are, you know, really discontent. And then, you know, at the director and VP level, you know, everybody thought everything was fine. And it's, it always just seems to be that same story. And it's, where is the disconnect, you know, in these corporations, as far as, you know, why do your frontline people always have a completely different story um, than, you know, the high level managers and, I mean, the other interesting thing is, and, you know, in my experience too, it's, it's always like, why do these, I guess, higher level people not want to dig into that? Are they, you know, scared 
of what they're going to find and the problems they might have to fix. And, you know, do they maybe just not know how to approach it? Are they just willfully ignorant because, hey, I'm collecting a big paycheck, you know, being up here, but, you know, the performance of the business is suffering, but, you know, who really cares as long as, you know, I got a nice house and nice car and can do whatever I want, um, you know, or, you know, are they really that clueless? And I guess depending on the company or, you know, the individuals, it could be a combination of several of those factors. Yeah, no. So, so let's dig, let's dig into one. I think, I think part of a disconnect might be understanding. I mean, if you're undergrad, college, you get an MBA, you're a finance person, you come up through the finance ranks. I mean, I will be the, and and that's kind of my background. I'll be the first to admit that there can be a disconnect because ultimately I just break down, break things down into numbers. And so I'll sit there and go, okay, can we cut 25% out of our chemicals program? And you know, I don't have the full understanding of, okay, if we cut the chemicals programs back, that's great. But that production forecast I gave you, we're going to 10% underperform it because the wells are gummed up or whatever the, the, the point may be. So I'll kind of, I'll kind of start first by going guilty as charged on that front that it's, that it's understanding. Is that is that a possibility? Well, so I would say 100% of that. And I'll tell you probably everything I'm going to say on this podcast, if I listen to it in 10 years, I'm probably going to look at what I say and I'm going to think, man, I was an idiot. Because if I look back to, you know, when I first started in the industry and some of the things that were done, I kind of thought, oh, that's really stupid. And then, you know, now having you know, some understanding of how budgets work, business processes, um, you know, cost benefit analysis for investment, all that sort of stuff. It makes a lot more sense to me. Do I agree with everything that I saw back in the day? Uh, I think some of the views might have been skewed. Uh, so, you know, from a field level, there's, I guess, maybe a misunderstanding of higher up. And then, I mean, the other way, too, um, you know, and, and I find it interesting because you know, I'm actually looking at because I'm currently unemployed and kind of lacking the education. And after, uh, you know, some experience there and kind of looking at doing an MBA myself and, you know, looking forward to, you know, getting the theoretical understanding of a lot of stuff and more kind of the numbers and to relate it to, you know, the more hands on nitty gritty experience. Um, I have you know, a friend, for example, though, and uh, he works for, uh, I'll just say a pipeline company up here. And if you're not familiar, I don't know how it works in the US, but in Canada with, with pipeline companies, I mean, there's a lot of regulation. And basically, if they make more money, or too much money over a certain threshold, they have to give that money back to their customers. And, you know, he kind of said to me one day, he's like, you know, I just got this this new manager and first thing he did was want to cut the budget so we make more money. And it's like, 
I don't think he understands like if if we make more money because we cut the budget, we have to give that money back to our customers. So really we're just we're making ourselves suffer for no reason and in our our business, you know, the the reliability like we're better off spending the money on our equipment, making sure our reliability's up, that sort of thing, um, you know, so we can meet contracts instead of just, you know, giving that money back to our customers. And, you know, it sounded like he tried to have a discussion with, you know, the newly incoming manager and uh, they, I don't, I don't know how receptive they were to that. Well, that, that, that's actually interesting. You bring up because, you know, it, it, the, frustration i would have as a board member so i was i was never really a manager so i'm even further steps removed than a manager but one of the frustrations i would have as a board member is ultimately at the end of the day it's about making money and it's about making appropriate amounts of money on the capital that you invested and so we'd get into arguments sometimes with uh with companies where it would be, hey, you know, if we do, if we, you know, do X, Y, Z, we're going to save 10% on the cost of drilling and completing this well. And we would sit there and go, okay, that's great. But if the well doesn't perform as we thought, because we're not using our analogies anymore, we're doing 10% less and whether that, or, you know, we change the frack because it's cheaper or whatever the case may be. You know, if it doesn't work out, are we going to blame the frack? Are we going to blame the rock? I.e., we're not going to know. So a lot of kind of translating what we were doing into numbers was trying to be thoughtful, stepping through so that we could make that return. Like if our 15 wells that we're using as analogy and we're saying the rock looks the same, well, let's do the same exact completion as those 15 wells and see if our rock gives up the same results as those 15 wells that we had uh, production data on. Because if it doesn't, it doesn't work out. And I think that got lost in translation. I mean, that really took a lot of sitting down, really talking through to make sure we understood. Because I do think uh, people at the, the operating level get into that optimization mode or this is how we do things. And even if it sounds counter, you know, let's translate it into dollars because ultimately that's what it's all about. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, just kind of as you're, you know, kind of talking through that, you know, and just from, I guess, an industry and company basis, I think one of the big things maybe too that has changed um you know i was just i guess i was reminiscing on you know one of the uh at the big oil sands facility i was at and a lot of the issues we have and as operations people we're kind of like well why did they cut that out of the project why did they cut that out um and one of the things that was sort of you know somebody said is well if you left if you left uh what was kept in a project and what was cut out of a project to people in operations, you would never make found sound financial decisions. You, you would have every bell and whistle and basically the project wouldn't be viable from day one. 
which, you know, I can appreciate that point of view. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, in the oil and gas industry and several other industries, um, that's one of the big things that's maybe missing at higher levels is, you know, I look at the levels of management and, you know, my, my coworkers used to uh, bug me a little bit about because I was kind of buddies with some of the engineers because uh, I have a little bit of, uh, you know, I don't have an engineering degree, but I have a technical diploma in kind of that field and could kind of understand their lingo. And, you know, at every level of management, I think it's important that you've got that cross-functional team of, you know, the experience of, you know, kind of the guy that understands the numbers and finance, the guy that understands the technical and the guy that's, you know, the hands-on sort of, uh, you know, understands the ground level nitty gritty, um, you know, to have those, those discussions, I guess, early on as far as where is the balance here. Right. And, and really that's, that's all a company is trying to do is leverage the individuals and the experience of those individuals and education of those individuals in kind of the most efficient way possible. And I think a lot of companies are maybe missing the mark because, you know, if you can, if you can display stuff in numbers terms, as far as performance or, you know, show like, Hey, I, I saved this much money or, you know, we can cut this much cost that, that draws a lot more attention than kind of the guy that's common sense. It's like, well, if you do that, here's going to be the result. And I don't know how you're going to measure that, but here's where your challenges are going to be. Yeah. We used to talk about that a lot, that the way to look at decisions weren't absolute. It was always a water balloon, right? You push in one side, the other side's going to pop out. And so you've got to, you got to make sure you measure the other side that uh, that pops out. And so, you know, I think one of the things we always did that was helpful with our management teams is we would sit there and kind of translate things into numbers, but then translate back into what they were doing. And so we'd we'd say, okay, how much is this completion going to cost, for instance? And we would me- we would uh, sit there and say, okay, so we're going to be cheaper than previous uh, completions. We're going to use less sand. We'll use less water, whatever the case may be. But let's just do two of those. Let's watch the results of the production, and then we'll then we'll measure that. And you know, you'd find sometimes that if you save ten percent on the completion and it costs you two percent of your reserves, that was actually okay. That was actually more economic. And ultimately, uh, it it was better, you know, dollars dollars returned on capital because we 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 do that and we go back and forth with it, and I think that would that would help a lot. But yeah, I mean, the the I do think you're you're right that we see way too often in corporate America just dictates come from up top. And they don't seem to have a lot of rhyme or reason, so they don't wind up getting buy-in. And so they happen, but that water balloon, the other side pops out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know it's not oil and gas industry, but uh, one, one perfect example, I guess, of maybe not having that balance is, uh, you know, 
I know some people in the railroad industry, and if if you look at the railroad industry all across North America, um, Hunter Harrison came out and he brought out the you know what is it precision scheduled railroad and all that sort of stuff, and um, these companies, all of them, everyone that Hunter Harrison went to, and he he just played the numbers, he cut budgets, whatever. They all got these great financial performance you know, kind of the initial few years, I think all those railroad companies are maybe uh, going to have to move away from that in the near future. But, uh, you know, I guess an outside oil and gas example of, you know, we're just looking at the straight numbers. There's, there's long-term impacts that, you know, you can get by for a little while, but, it, but in the long run, some of these things will bite you. And, and in the railroad industry, like those people, ground level have said like this is stupid this is you know this is going to bite us in the long run and it's it's been years yeah and that you know the railroad companies have made good money but you know i think a lot of them might be getting to this tipping point now where where they're going to have to maybe change how they do things again to be sustainable long term yeah you know my non-oil and gas example of this uh because i went to college with a guy he, back in college he was known as willie willie mcclay played football for rice he's now known as will mcclay and he works for the dallas cowboys and he is their director of player evaluation so he's not the general manager per se um but you know almost serves in that role working with stephen and jerry jones but one of the things will did early on when he took that role is he got the coaches together with the scouts that were evaluating players and the coaches would talk through their schemes and they'd say, Hey, you know, what I need my outside linebacker to be able to do is this, this, and this. And what it did was the scout knew the skill set that that coach needed in that position and it actually changed metrics they'd look at, you know, instead of 40 speed or vertical leap or whatever, they might look for certain different things on tape or when scouting in person. And, you know, we can all drafting players is really hard, but for the most part, the Cowboys have done a pretty good job of it over the last five to six years. And, and it was literally getting, you know, in effect, upper management and frontline workers together to go through that and, and share kind of uh, things back and forth. And it really, it led to buy-in from the scouts because when they know what the coaches are looking for, you know, they, they're more apt to, to do it because they understand why. And so that's, that's my kind of non-oil and gas ex example of potentially how we bridge some of this gap that you're talking about. Well, and I, I think that's a really good, you know, maybe smaller scale example, but, you know, like, I guess senior leadership in a company, you know, besides kind of managing the money and whatever, like, what it, what is kind of their, their big job? And it's, you got to lay out the vision for the organization and get everybody swimming the same direction, lay out that corporate culture. And I'll tell you this, I don't believe that there is, an exact right corporate culture, um, you know, and then along with that comes, you know, your, your business processes, you know, and I, I know with some people that's kind of a 
you know, swear word because, you know, people are tired of, you know, all paperwork, business processes, whatever. But those need to be scaled to your corporate culture. Those need to be scaled to the size of your organization. Um, you know, it needs to, I guess, reflect the skill of your workforce, um, you know, your future kind of attrition, that sort of thing. Um you know, and who you're going to have to bring into your organization, get them up to speed and align with, you know, ultimately your, your corporate culture. I mean, the company I worked for, it seemed like their solution to everything was let's bring in a new rule, a new business process, um, whatever. Well, there was no accountability. Like people, if, if people just don't follow the process that you've laid out, what's the point in having it? And, you know, it's, so when you lay out that vision from the upper management, it's, okay, well, now how do we make sure, you know, that message gets to the bottom? How do we make sure that we're balancing, you know, our tools, you know, your business processes, your policies and procedures, all that sort of stuff, your financial evaluations? How are we balancing that with the people side of it, too, which, you know, it's it's important to lay out, I guess, those expectations to people, um, have the accountability. And I mean, also the other thing too, is explain to people. I mean, when I was a supervisor, you know, new supervisor, first thing I did, I told the guys, I said, look, like I kind of said, I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I'm, you know, new to this, but here's how this has to work. You guys make sure the equipment's running, put the oil through, make sure stuff's turned over to maintenance et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You do it safely. I said, my job here is to support you doing that. And, you know, I said like, otherwise I don't add any value to the company because not a barrel of oil gets made with me sitting in this chair or, you know, you know, having said that, I said, you know, sometimes I'm going to have to ask you guys to do some things that maybe, you know, there's expectations on how we do some things or, you know, there will be asked from you. Um, I will try to make sure it's not a waste of your time because there's always, you know, the little pet projects and people wanting to do whatever. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, at the end of the day, it needs to support you doing whatever. And I have to hold you to the expectations to make sure, you know, you're doing your job safely and efficiently and everything else. And you know what? Surprisingly, the guys were really receptive to that. And, you know, when I had to ask them to do things that maybe they didn't understand or question the value, you know, we could talk through it at the same time. They weren't afraid to ask me for help. Right. And I think, you know, that's the important thing is, you know, both sides need to understand their part in the equation, you know, in a company. And, you know, the ultimately the end goal of that company is to make money and whether it's publicly or privately traded, it's make money for the, you know, investors um you know and everybody get home safe at the end of the day and all of that kind of cut out there is that on my side or is that on your side no i just kind of finished my my round okay i got you the um no, it's one of the most successful oil and gas companies we had 
Um, one of the things they did that I, I thought was really interesting is the chief operating officer sat down with the field supervisors slash uh, all the pumpers and just created little business units. You know, if you're tending to these 30 wells, that's your little business unit and created individual income statements uh, for each one of the little business units for, for each pumper and was able to lay out for the pumpers Here's our expectation for it. We think this is what production decline should look like. Here's what we think operating expenses should look like. And it did two things. One, the pumpers had input into that. They were like, hey, this, 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 maybe expenses are going to be more, maybe they could be less. But then it also gave them a target to go beat. And uh, and uh, it worked. It wound up being really effective because it, to, to some degree, there was the, the big picture guidance from up above, kind of the person dealing with the water balloon, if you will. Um, but then you also got buy-in from the, the people, what I say, down in the weeds that, that truly, truly knew stuff. And so that company wound up doing really well. And the pumpers would actually kind of bet each other beers and stuff on who could beat their their forecasts and the like and it it wound up being really successful but i think it comes back to what we've been talking about in terms of just you know you've got to be able to get buy-in um and and be more collaborative than just top-down pushes on stuff well and honestly i think that's a you know really great way to do it i mean obviously you have to scale kind of how you set up that business unit to the understanding and the skill of, you know, the people that are kind of managing that part, um, you know, make sure you have the right kind of key process indicators, KPIs. Um, and I mean, make sure you're using them the right way too. I could do a whole rant about key process, you know, indicators and, you know, people getting beaten over KPIs when nothing is actually wrong. It's just, you know, something's different in a KPI. It doesn't mean something's wrong. It just means let's have a look at it and, you know, have a discussion. But, you know, that's a, that's kind of a really great way to do it because people I find tend to perform better when, you know, they're almost a little bit autonomous, you know, they can, they feel like they're doing their own thing within kind of a bound, you know, boundary. And they, you know, they know where the, the goalposts are. They know where the lines are. And they know what they have to do to kind of get that performance. And they will challenge themselves if you put it in their own hands. And then you can kind of coach and mentor them with the skills to kind of reach what they need to do. Um, <clears throat> on one of the projects I was on, I actually had the benefit of working with some really good management consultants that came in to sort of help us. And, you know, it was really interesting because some of these guys had you know, very wide range of experience from doing everything. Like some of the guys work for, you know, 3M. Uh, some of them work for, well, one guy worked for GE. He had some really good stories about GE during its, its heyday when, you know, I know the financial crisis kind of decimated that company, but I guess, you know, previous to that, um, their leadership basically, because they had all these arms of this conglomerate company basically told all the kind of VPs and stuff like, look, 
you are the CEO of your own little company here and here's what you needed to do. And those guys were free to manage the business the way, you know, they needed to, um, you know, and then obviously going, you know, to the board of directors and stuff when they needed money, that sort of thing. Obviously that fell apart at some point because G did very good. And then, you know, bet everything on the financial wing during, you know, before the financial crisis. And then, you know, didn't do so well after, and who knows if they'll ever kind of recover. Um, you know, and then another interesting, you know, experience that one of the, the management consultants shared with me is, and I forget which company it was, but they were, they were working to kind of lay out some uh, new kind of maintenance processes and stuff for maintaining some factories for a company. And, uh, you know, this, this company was really adamant. Like we want a standardized approach worldwide. And, uh, they, they had a factory in Germany, I guess. And then they also had one, um, in like Indonesia or something. And, you know, they had to have a kind of a really tough discussion with senior leadership after they toured all these factories and, you know, kind of said, Hey, like your technicians in Germany, don't need the same level of kind of a process as your guys in Indonesia do because the the difference in experience and you know the understanding of the business and you know being able to operate autonomous and stuff the guys in Germany are highly trained they understand the business you know you need kind of bare minimum guidance to sort of let these guys do their thing and they will keep your factory running efficiently. Your guys in Indonesia, they don't have the same level of training experience. We got to get a little more detailed with them. You may one day be able to, you know, loosen that standard off if you can keep kind of the same people and, you know, get their skills and experience up. But for right now, you can't have this dream of one standardized, you know, system over the world. And they said that was a really hard discussion to have with that that senior leadership team, but kind of once they got the message through, uh, it ended up working out really well for them. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it, it's interesting just cause you know, a lot of this kind of moves in conjunction with just culture. Right. I mean, a hundred years ago, we were very, trained to do what we were told, et cetera, et cetera. And as people got empowered with technology, we did a great job of, you know, creating the standard of living in the West where we didn't have to go work in a coal mine every day to, uh, to necessarily survive, you know, companies have and management practices kind of have to adapt with that and, you know, taking feedback from, from others as opposed to top down approaches have, uh, have happened. So I think we've like solved the world's problems now. We're just going to have these big kumbayas between, uh, senior management and the workers and we're going to make it all better. Well, yeah, if it was, if it was that easy, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh it's really interesting too like if you get looking at, you know, different businesses and that sort of thing because I mean there are businesses where that that top-down approach needs to be a little more, you know, prevalent where, you know, you've got kind of a very standard sort of business, you know, worldwide and you know there's there's huge efficiency gains to 
um, you know, having services like procurement and things like that, that are worldwide and everybody utilizing the same way. Um, but you know, the other side too is, you know, the workforce too. I mean, I guess it's, it's amazing. I guess, uh, some of the things I've seen in, in industry where, certain individuals can treat working like it's a social club and never actually contribute much. And yet they just float by. And as long as they're a likable personality and, you know, I think that's, that's a big thing too. Some of these companies need to look at is how are they, you know, evaluating their people and how willing are they to kind of, you know, let go to free up that slot for somebody that, you know, actually wants to get on board and actually you know you can't have a whole workforce of people that want to want to change everything but you could you know definitely work to have a workforce that you know hopefully as many people as you can want to understand your business as good as they can be a part of it you know and work to you know be a part of that con uh continuous improvement right yeah, that's, I think you're, uh, I think you're exactly right. The, uh, you know, one of the things I like about your Twitter account is, uh, is, is your rants on stuff. So I'm like scrolling through your Twitter account and, uh, I'm going to throw some rants at you and, and, uh, you can either tell me what was happening in the backstory, continue the rant or, or, uh, whatever the case may be, but like, you must have tried to close a checking account at some point because you you've had a few bitches on here about roadblocks that financial institutions throw up when you try to take their your money back. Oh God. Uh well with that, I uh I was trying to transfer um several hundred thousand dollars of my investments, which was uh rather interesting because um i tried to phone the one institution they're like no you need to get the other institution to fill out a form and it was you know a non-registered account to a non-registered account so i go to the other institution i'm moving it to i get the form filled out they send it in and i wait a couple weeks and you know i'm sitting there waiting and then one day i get a phone call and it's like oh well we might have to withhold tax on this. And I'm like, well, no, you don't. Here's, here's the situation. Oh, well, we have to verify what account it's going in. Well, it's going into this account. It should be on the form right here. Oh, we didn't see that. And I don't know, stuff like that drives me nuts because it's like, I'm a customer of a financial institution. I shouldn't understand the tax implications and how the money needs to be moved better than you do working in a financial institution. The, uh, you know, my, my big beef and I'll just call them out cause it was best buy, but my ex-wife, a purse got stolen out of her car. And literally within 10 minutes, I was on the phone with American express canceling credit cards, you know, doing all that stuff. Well, so, Whoever stole the purse drove immediately to Best Buy and um, bought this, you know, five thousand dollar TV by writing a check. And my my wife or my ex wife, red hair, 
very, very white skin. You know, we always joke that our kids are translucent because we're so pale. Um, did not look anything like the lady that actually wrote the check because they had the camera. So obviously the clerk at Best Buy was in on it, right? They didn't look at the ID. I guess if you were being somewhat uh, defensive of it, you'd say, well, they looked at the ID, but they didn't look close enough. Probably more likely they were in on the, uh, the scam. So when I go to buy a house, the mortgage company wouldn't give me a loan because Best Buy said I owed them $5,000 for passing a bad check. So I called Best Buy and I was like, hey, that wasn't me. Purse was stolen, blah, blah. They're like, all right, send us the police report. I send them the police report. They come back. No, I need. we need a notarized copy of the police report. I'm like, okay. So I send that in. They actually kept giving me the runaround on this to, I think this day, Best Buy still has on my credit report that I owe them $5,000. And I tried for a year to get that off. It's crazy. Oh, that is insane. And I mean, the level of bureaucracy that people have to deal with. And I mean, some people just contribute to in society in general is insane. Like, it's like people that work basically anywhere are so scared to make a decision or, you know, apply, dear God, you say the word common sense to, you know, something that's going on for like fear of, I don't know, repercussions or whatever the case may be. I mean, I dealt with that in the workplace before. I, I remember I made a decision and somebody wanted to get my manager involved. And I was like, well, like, just do this and, you know, I'll let them know. And the the guy I was dealing with was like, well, that's that's kind of above your level to make that decision. And it's like, well, first of all, it's not. Second of all, I got this job by making decisions above my level. So you can just do it and say that I said to do it. I'll let my manager know. And it was funny because in the long run, it turned into a three-day delay of putting back together a piece of equipment because we had to get engineers involved and everything else because nobody wanted to make a decision to put it back together. And my view on it was simply, let's put it back together while we let management know and while we get engineers involved. And if it doesn't work, we're in the same spot. And if it does work, we look like heroes. But in society in general, nobody wants to do that anymore. Yeah, it's just a mess. Speaking of, like, give me a rant on your government. Because I, I can, I am just shocked at what I've seen coming from the Canadian government, just having to do with, with everything, COVID, dealing with the truckers, just everything. I, man, I, to me, Trudeau just when he first got elected seemed like kind of a young guy, maybe a little bit in over his head. Had no idea that you guys were were harboring an authoritarian up there. Well, I mean, oh my God, the Canadian government and Trudeau. Um, where do I start? First of all, um, in Canada, 
like Canada is such a nanny state. They want to protect everybody. And a big part I blame is our public health care system, because that seems to be a fallback, you know, for COVID. Um, I'm a gun owner. I, you know, probably belong in Texas for some of the things I own and, you know, some of the new bans they've brought in for firearms and things like that. It's, it's just this like mantra here of like, if we can save one life and it's like, well, like at what cost, like what is the cost going to be here to save one life? Because nobody wants to have any personal responsibility here for their own life. And I, I can't say nobody in Alberta. There's quite a few, you know, people just want to be left alone, do their thing, you know, they don't want to bug anybody else. They just want to have their, their way of life. But there seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, especially in Eastern Canada, everybody wants to kind of lay out this ideal for society. And, you know, I don't want to say it's socialist utopia, but, you know, some people are kind of on that edge there where, you know, everything will be okay if uh, everybody just acts the same way. And it's like, well, you look at North America and that that hasn't been what's, you know, let us excel, you know, economically, you know, freedom wise, everything else. And Trudeau and, you know, the batch idiots in there, you know, they just they want to go with that. And they're they're all if you look like Trudeau's an elite. His dad was prime minister. You know, he's wealthy. Like these guys don't understand the average person, the problem, the average person, you know, comes across or has and yet they're selling this bs to supposedly average people that just lap it up and it's like look at this guy has has been born into wealth and you know he wants to you know just decide how everybody's gonna live and you're gonna get on board with this like i, I don't get how anybody trusts that i it it just baffles me it's i don't know I, yeah. I very much like in Alberta here, there's a lot of talk about separation again, a lot of talk about, you know, we have the, the federal police force, the RCMP, booting them out, getting our own police force, you know. I mean, me personally, I think Alberta belongs, you know, as part of the U.S., and I think we would do a lot better, but good luck ever getting there. Yeah, no, it's... It's it's interesting because I think, you know, we always joked about because Texas is the only state in the United States that was ever its own country. So we actually entered the United States vis-a-vis a treaty. Um, and so we always talk about, hey, we're going to, you know, secede and go be Texas again. But I mean, we really do have a pretty big red-blue divide here in the United States, and it does not feel like it's getting uh, any better. And that that really kind of worries me because you know when I I was a political science major in college, um, so when I was young and watching politics in the '80s, you know Reagan and Tip O'Neill were. Republican and Democrat, and they kind of argued during the day, but they'd go get a scotch at night and you kind of compromised. And as much as, you know, I think at the end of the day, 
uh, I may have my beliefs. If you if you have a process that involves some compromise and all views are taken into account, generally speaking, outcomes are better than uh, than you know, kind of like like my political science professor used to always say: a constitution is good, revolution is usually bad, right? And so. So yeah, no, it's it's scary where we where we are today, and we kind of see that you know it feels like just and my view of it's Twitter, but it feels like the same things going on in Canada, and that I don't think that portends for very well for the rest of the world if if we're having big fights uh, in our you know in the United States and Canada. Well, and like for me personally, I'll I'll tell you, I probably you know, piss off some people I know that are right wing is, well, maybe not as often as people that are left wing, but, you know, I'm, you know, if you were to sum up my political ideology, I'm, I'm very much like libertarian and not the, you know, oh, there should be no government anarchy, you know, people that claim that they're libertarian, but like, let's have minimal government Let's have minimal restrictions, you know, laws that are focused on, you know, if there's a victim of your crime, you know, you should probably be punished and, you know, there should be a deterrent. But, you know, otherwise, you know, like, you know, as a gun owner here in Canada, like the amount of paper crimes that are criminal charges because you didn't do something right. And it's like, where's the victim? You know, where does anybody get hurt? But no, we have these, these pointless laws, you know, and, you know, it's the same thing, even, you know, I ride a motorcycle and stuff and like speeding, it's like, yeah, okay. You're, if you're driving or riding a motorcycle at excessive speed in the middle of busy traffic, yeah, probably something should be done. You should, you know, be made an example out of, if you're on a back road and there happens to be a cop and there's nobody else around, I mean, very much that cop should be able to use his discretion to kind of be like, look, like, yeah, you're kind of being a dumbass. Here's a small fine or whatever the case may be, or you're going to kill yourself. But, you know, that's, that's kind of my approach is like, be sensible. Don't, don't hurt other people. I mean, you know, the other topic you get into is, you know, you look at, like in BC, they're they're pushing to, I guess, not prosecute drug possession and things like that. And it's, you know, like, you know, I've been pretty clear on Twitter, like, I'm sober, I don't drink, whatever, you know, I had issues years ago. At the same time, I don't care if people drink, I don't care if people do drugs. I think there should be supports for, you know, people that have problems, you know, there, there should be, you know, ways for them to get access to that but at the same time if they're not willing you know obviously they're not going to do anything but banning these things and trying to have the nanny state it doesn't do anybody any good and it just filters money to organize crime that sort of thing makes it so people you know hide the the use that sort of thing makes it so it's like taboo to you know kind of get you know the outreach you know to get help when somebody's finally ready. So like, I, I don't know. I struggle with both sides of like, it's gotta be my way. It's gotta be my way. It's like, 
Well, no, if everybody just backed off and it's like, let's let everybody just live their lives as long as you're not negatively impacting other people and, you know, keep the government to a minimal sort of thing. Cause I mean, that's another rant I could go on here. Well, you know what, you know, what's interesting. I read a study one time that, um, you know, particular, and it and it had to do with the the drug uh, quote unquote crisis in America. But basically, the point of the study was if you arrest people and put them in jail, at some point you take enough male role models out of a community, and crime gets worse. And so, you know, because the 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 right wing tough on crime is somebody commits crime you lock them up you know teach them a lesson and but if you do it for non-violent type folks on the drug laws you were you were just talking about you take enough men out of that community kids grow up without role models and um the the study actually and I wish I'd saved this study the the study actually said it's about 2% if you get take out more than two percent of the adult males of a community, that's when you start seeing worse behavior out of younger kids, particularly younger males, because they don't have role models to look up to. So it's not as it's not as simple, you know, for 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 either side because it goes back to that water balloon thing. You push one side, the other side pops out, and we need to understand those consequences. So I'm right there with you in terms of being a libertarian. I've only voted for the libertarian candidate for president my entire adult life. When I voted for the first time, and I forget how old I was. I was obviously older than 18, but I voted for the libertarian candidate because my whole point in doing that is we've always nominated a bunch of just jokers for the libertarian candidates always been a joker of some sort. And I figure it'd be nice if some real candidate would go, you know, even those jokers get 4% uh, when they run, if I run, maybe I'll actually get 30% or, or have a shot to win something. So that's why I do it. Well, and I mean, there's a couple of things you said there, but I mean, one, it's like when I look at U.S. politics in the last election, and I know some diehard Trump supporters, and, you know, not everything Trump did was bad, but Trump was chaotic. But, you know, when you look at the last election, it's like your two choices out of what? How many million people are in the U.S.? Yeah, 330 million, right? <laughs> so your top two picks out of 330 million people are Trump and Biden. Like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, dude, go back four years and it was Trump and Hillary. I mean, well, <laughs> it wasn't even an off year. This is a recurring thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in politics, there should be a wood chipper selection on the ballot. So if you don't want to pick any of the people on the ballot, you pick the wood chipper ballot. And if the wood chipper kind of wins... Then they take all the political candidates, feed them into a wood chipper on televised TV and in a big stadium and sell tickets to it. And then you go get new candidates. That's that's awesome. The the one uh, the one bumper sticker meme I've seen a whole bunch of uh, around here is 
hey, if we all promise to be good, could we maybe just have nobody as president? You know, let's just let's just see how that'll go for a while. Well, and, I mean, when I look at, you know, the U.S., Canada, politics, you end up with these, you know, I mean, Trump didn't fit that, but you end up with these career politicians that they very much like that's they've just lived off of the people. They don't, they don't understand the real world. And once in a while you get some people into politics that, uh, you know, have kind of, you know, been a businessman or whatever. Um, I actually read an interesting article, uh, before Trump became president that it was this, uh, political scientist and he had basically said like, he didn't think Trump was going to do very good. Because, yeah, he had been a businessman, but none of Trump's companies were ever publicly traded. So he never had to be accountable to shareholders. And, you know, being president, you're, you know, kind of like a CEO that needs to be accountable to shareholders. You know, you've got a population you have to be accountable to. And, you know, a little bit kind of saw that, right? Some of the stuff he did and, you know, it, it was kind of bang on that article on, you know, what happened. I think, you know, you would probably get some better people in politics if, uh, I don't know, like I know there's always the political leverage and a lot of people that are career politicians seem to get, you know, very wealthy, even though they're, they're not paid terrible, but they're not paid as good as executives at companies. Right. But, you know, if you could find a way to attract some of those, top performing leaders from the private sector, you know, to become president and, you know, some of these other, you know, house representatives, you know, senators, that sort of thing would probably be a big benefit. I always, you know, I always said when uh, I was in high school and I kind of said it for a fact, but I partially believed it. I, uh, I think we ought to pay, members of the house of representatives senators the president you know three million bucks a year i make it a really good job you know because the problem is you know paying somebody one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and they've got to have a home in their you know in their in richmond texas because that's their congressional district they've got to have an apartment or some place to live when they're in dc I mean, the only way you can support that is to be crooked, right? I mean, you have to cheat. And uh, so I've always kind of thought you ought to pay them a lot, make it an attractive job. And then you then you might actually have a better class of people that would be willing to serve. Because right now you either have people that are career politicians and are being crooked in the way they they make money or you have really rich people, you know. And uh, so it'd be nice if. If, uh, you know, a, a, a field supervisor for an oil and gas company could go run and would want to run because it's a good paying job. So, well, and I mean, the other thing, too, and I mean, it's, again, a double sided coin is just the party politics. And, you know, in the U.S., you're voting either you know, Democrat or Republican, if you want your vote to count. In Canada, you know, we've got, you know, several political parties. But, you know, when you look at, I guess, the basis of kind of 
democracy, you know, the U.S. system's a little bit different than Canada, but you vote for a representative, you know, to kind of represent your, you know, constituency or your district. And the party politics really prevents, you know, a lot of that from happening. And I've, you know, in Canada, you, you kind of see that where, you know, there, there might be uh, representatives like our members of parliament where, they know their constituents aren't going to agree, but they don't want to vote against party lines. So what do they do? They abstain from the vote. And it's like, well, that's that's not doing your constituents any good. You know what kind of happened in the United States about that is we had the Voting Rights Acts um, kind of from the 60s, which all in all were a good thing. Um, but here was kind of the un- unintended consequence. Um, you basically created minority districts within states for Congress. And the way the judicial system interprets the Voting Rights Act is that minority district equals a Democratic seat. I mean, there was actually a a Republican uh, Hispanic member of Congress and the Republicans in the state of Texas were like, hey, that's a minority seat, you know, per definition. And the judicial uh, the judicial oversight on it said, no, it's not. So when you carve out uh, Democratic districts, then you leave a smaller pie um, to divvy up. So you wind up with basically every seat is a safe seat. It's the de- and what that does is that pushes the real race into the primary as opposed to the general election. And the primaries just are where the extremes vote. I mean, the 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 true party loyalists vote. And so the Democratic primary winner, if that's ultimately just going to win the, the congressional seat, uh, you know, you wind up nominating someone more liberal than if you needed a more centrist type candidate. And same is true on the other side with the uh, with the Republicans, is you get a more extreme, a more right wing candidate than if they had to go into a general election and, and appeal to the masses. And so that's why I, I think that's at least one of the factors on why we've become so polarized. It's something ridiculous. Uh, you know, 80 percent of, of seats are uncompetitive. So in in the House of Representatives, it's something like that. So, yeah, you, you wind up with kind of this polarization. So I don't know, unfortunately, if we're going to be able to uh, solve that one. Well, I, I mean, I'm not opposed to just everything going to complete chaos. And, you know, we could just redefine North America. I know, uh, what was it? There were those guys... And I heard they did it a little bit as a joke up, you know, but there was one guy that was arrested up here in Canada that was talking about the Dianglathon country or whatever. But basically it was like, you know, the West Coast can become a country, you know, the middle of North America becomes a country and the East Coast can become a country. And I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like that bad of an idea. I mean, you know. People evolve, uh, you know, democracies evolve. There's there's changes in the way people think, where people migrate to, et cetera. I mean, the whole, the whole kind of thing with the U.S. that 
you know, as an outsider, like looking, the U.S. was always just supposed to be, you know, some, you know, a federation of states where the states kind of could have a lot more autonomy. And it's now grown into this big bloated federal government that, you know, has now defeated that whole, you know, purpose of what, what the U.S. was originally based on. And, you know, I think that's a big part of too, why you're seeing these problems is now you're, you're trying to hold people tighter together that have more differing views and they can't express their autonomy, you know, in, at the state level, the way that, you know, was originally intended. Yeah, no, because I mean, that was one of the beauties of the design is, and we didn't have 50 states back then, but I'll go ahead and just use 50 is, in effect, problems we have, we have 50 different laboratories to try to go solve it. And certain things would work really well. And just by regional differences, etc. Maybe there's a solution for Wisconsin, and there's a solution for Texas. But the other side of it, too, is if Wisconsin figures something out, 49 other states could look to that and adopt it. And uh, and you're right. It, it almost kind of goes back to the original thing we were talking about. You know, the states are kind of the frontline workers and and senior management's the federal government. And you've you've moved to a world where you're having top down dictates and they do it. They do it with the purse strings. They'll say, hey, we'll give you money for the highways. But, oh, by the way, here's going to be your driving laws. Here's going to be fuel standards for cars, you know, et cetera. And, and they really are getting their way. So, yeah, now as the uh, as the libertarian, uh, it gets a little tougher each day, it seems. Well, and I don't I don't even know if kind of some of the, uh, I guess, more federalist supporting Americans really understand I guess the impacts, but, you know, having lived in Canada my whole life and working and I mean, the end of the day, what, what do people appreciate, I guess, the most or what, what impacts them the most? And I'll just say tax rates in the U S are a lot lower. And if people realized how much taxes they would end up paying, if, you know, they they were able to succeed with the federal government. I mean, here in Canada, I think I was paying close to 40% of my income, you know, when I was working in taxes, which is absurd. Like Yeah, no, you can get you can get to spots in because like New York City has a city tax, a state income tax. Um, as well as the federal, you can push in the United States sort of 50, 55% of your income. Uh, and I guess that's the top marginal rate. So all told, it's less than that. But it's pretty stunning that, uh, and that's not even including the extra stuff you have to pay for just because of regulations that make things inefficient. It's pretty, pretty stunning that Two out of every five cents you have go to the government. And they run deficits, which leads to inflation, which uh, which is, in effect, another tax. It's, it's really scary. Well, and so to me, the only fair tax where it's required is sales taxes. So if you look at, you know, and electric vehicles are screwing with this example a little bit. 
But if you look at, uh, you know, at least here in Canada, like our fuel tax is supposed to go to build and maintaining roads. I mean, it, it goes into the general slush fund and they piss it away like everything else. But, you know, if you could put some kind of limits and strings on where that money goes, it makes sense. You use more fuel. You probably have a bigger vehicle that puts more wear and tear on the road. So therefore, you're kind of proportionally paying more. Or if you drive a whole bunch, you're putting more wear and tear on the road. You're using more fuel. You're kind of proportionally paying more. Like sales taxes like that for where taxes are required make the most sense. But they should be limited to being used for that purpose. Yeah, no, and I agree. I agree with you on consumption taxes because just because I make a million dollars a year, if I choose to sit in a one bedroom apartment and never go outside, um, and I make that million dollars a year, I'm not drawing on the things that government's supposed to do with you to the same degree as other people. But if I'm out buying a car, driving on the roads, I'm out eating at restaurants, uh, you know, I'm taking vacations and the like, that's where you're really utilizing the infrastructure that the government's paying for. And if you paid a consumption tax, you'd, you'd in effect be paying to some degree with with your with your use of it, and so I've never I've never been a big fan of uh, of the income tax because I think at the end of the day it just leads to perversions and behavior and and the reason we have it right is the tax code. It's so easy to manipulate the tax code in favor of industries that are in effect unbeknownst to most people and so that's why that's why we do it through the tax code as opposed to having a flat tax or a consumption based tax that's not as easy to manipulate for behavior well i have always really said to people if you ever want to you know break that barrier of being middle class to becoming wealthy learn the tax laws and the simple reason is the tax laws have been created by really wealthy people that have the appropriate loopholes for themselves. So if you learn that and you're a middle class person and you want to, you know, work your way into upper class or wealthy, you got to learn how to utilize those same loopholes and, you know, emulate the behaviors of the people that are already wealthy. That's uh that's a really interesting point. And it's it's almost you could take it a step further is if you want to know potentially what's gonna be quote unquote a protected industry and i.e. generally a really good business, go watch changes in the tax code. Cause if the tax code starts favoring stuff, that generally generally means it's favoring the incumbent. So you want to get hold of an incumbent because they've built a moat around themselves. You know. Oh yeah, and I mean, well, I am a a hater of uh, Tesla stock. Like I continuously carry put options on them, which you know I just kind of see as you know a yearly payment that I make. But you know, <laughs> Tesla is a perfect example of you know. They, they make electric cars. I don't think they're a profitable business at all. 
but they've been able to sell their, you know, carbon credits or whatever to other companies to show a profit and basically cook their bucks in, you know, my opinion. No, that's, that is, that is exactly right. That being said, the one thing I will say kind of in defense of of Elon Musk is, to his credit, he's the only one that actually really has cars out there running around. You know, you look at all these other startup electric vehicle companies and, you know, none of them really have cars out on the road uh, to the degree he's done. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's he would not be the richest man in the world if not for government subsidies. It's almost like you can measure his net worth. I've seen some charts on it where his net worth basically equals the amount of subsidies Tesla's gotten over time. Well, and, you know, a really interesting thing. And, you know, I I worked with one guy that was a Tesla owner and very much loved it and talked about how much cheaper it was and everything else. But I think it's Saskatchewan up here in Canada is now starting to or talking about taxing owners of electric vehicles when they renew their registration because they're not paying any road tax. And I think that may become a very, you know, interesting thing for that industry when, you know, governments try and get their road taxes back from the electric cars because they've basically been, you know, skating by for free. And as they become more popular, the government's going to want their money eventually. Oh, yeah. No, they will. They will. Uh, they will totally get it. The I actually owned a Tesla for six years and I'm I, I'm bullish on electric vehicles, not to go save the planet and all that. Just performance wise, they can be really good cars, but they definitely have uh, limitations, uh, which we're not going to see 90% of the cars on the road as electric vehicles. We're just not, I mean, it's not, it's not practical. So not practical, but, uh, trashy, this was cool of you to come on. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, I guess talked about wide wide range of topics here. Yeah, no, it was it was really cool because we've always kind of gone back on uh, back and forth on Twitter, and we've never actually met. So I appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for the opportunity.